As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we will try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics and a writer and speaker on some of these issues. In other words, he's the expert but I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not so stupid, that help make sense of it all. One of the perhaps unexpected results of the coronavirus pandemic is how it has thrown up some fascinating debates about technology. Many countries, including the UK, have been grappling with if and how they could use Bluetooth apps to try and trace the spread of the virus. Around the world, other nations have used the ubiquity of smartphones to quarantine and control potentially infected people, while some poorer states have seen their efforts hindered by a critical lack of healthcare technology, such as ventilators. In this episode of Matters of Life and Death, John and I delve into some of these discussions and try and look forward to see what impact the pandemic may have on our increasingly digital lives in the future. John, good to speak to you again. Thanks for joining us. Um, we wanted to talk today, or started off talking today, about the use of technology within the coronavirus pandemic. Um, one of the things that people will have noticed in the news that's been mentioned a lot is this idea of contact tracing and using technological surveillance to try and control the virus. Do you want to speak a little about how you see that playing out and what impacts that might be having? Yeah, one of the really interesting things about um, this current pandemic is the positive potential for really very sophisticated surveillance technology. So in general, I think a lot of people, myself included, have been very concerned about the negative impact that, you know, very invasive surveillance technology uh, offers. And so Of course, it's very well known that totalitarian governments, particularly China, but other totalitarian governments around the world have been using sophisticated digital surveillance technology, often using smartphones as well as facial recognition cameras and and so on um, as a way of monitoring the population and as a form of social control. And then in the West, we've had the tech companies particularly Google, but I mean, all the big tech companies who've, who've been using different forms 
of monitoring really for commercial gain um, using uh, sophisticated ways of, of monitoring our shopping habits and our movements uh, and so on. And, and by and large, <clears throat> most people have seen this as something really quite negative and threatening. Um, but it's interesting that if you were to think of the one situation in which a really invasive form of surveillance and monitoring of the population could be justified, the one situation is at the time of a lethal pandemic. And, and so I do think that um, this idea of using technology to track down and monitor people's activities and who they're meeting and where they're going and to, be, to use that to try to document the spread of this infection, I, I think that idea is going to remain with us and uh, and probably it will lead to a, a sort of a an acceptance of, of surveillance um, and an overcoming of a sort of inbuilt resistance to the idea that we're being constantly monitored. Mm. To get quite practical for a second, for here in the UK, we've heard quite a lot about this NHS app that they're currently still developing, although it has been trialled in, in the Isle of Wight. And just briefly, the way I understand that would work is that if you install the app on your phone, it works in the background. And every time you you get within Bluetooth distance, which is, you know, approximately 10 to 20 metres away from someone else whose phone has the same app, it basically records that you have been close to that person. And then the theory would be when someone uh, tests positive for coronavirus, uh, you mark that in your own app and then it basically sends a kind of cascading wave of notifications to everyone that you've been in contact with gets a notification on their app saying, you may have coronavirus, you should self-isolate for 14 days. Yeah, so the idea of contact tracing, of course, is is a very old idea. And in fact, it goes back to the whole dawn of the development of epidemiology as a separate medical discipline. And there's a famous case of a uh, epidemic of cholera in London um, and this was traced using contact tracing and, and putting a map of where all the um, infected cases were uh, it was eventually traced to a single water pump that was the source of the infection so the idea of tracing um, of contacts has has been around for a long time but it's always been seen as a human activity it was and you train people uh, to become contact tracers and and so for instance you know if if 20 years ago you developed a uh, an important and very infectious disease such as uh, smallpox or um, some other Im uh, important and potentially lethal infection then um, you would be automatically involved uh, people would contact you and and would trace your contact um, the last time this happened to a large extent was actually with the HIV epidemic and with uh, socially sexually transmitted infections where there are still um, you know people professionally employed as contact tracers um, I think the new idea and of course it fits in with the whole technical zeitgeist is you know we don't need to use human beings let's let's have a technological fix let's Let's just use very clever technology and we can get over the need for these expensive and limited human beings to actually do the physical contact tracing. Um, and I think 
the general conclusion that's coming, certainly from these different apps that are being tried out in the West, is it turns out to be a lot harder than people thought. Um, and it's not surprising if you think about it. You know, Bluetooth was never intended as a way of monitoring chance contact in a crowd. Bluetooth was designed as a way of connecting different boxes to one another without having a wire. Um, and so to try to retrofit Bluetooth as a as a, as a way of monitoring chance connections uh, is turning out to be much more complicated than people thought. And um, also, of course, there are lots of concerns, um, privacy concerns from people in, in Western liberal societies about, you know, how this uh, information about precisely where I was yesterday and who who I was visiting and so on, um, you know, this is very socially invasive. In fact, there have been documented cases in China or and in other countries, I think, Southeast Asian countries where um, people have been monitored, you know, visiting prostitutes and going to um, socially disreputable places um, and picked up on, on contact tracing apps and their information then being broadcast to other people in the society. So you can see how <clears throat> this is a very um, <clears throat> invasive technology. And I think what the experience so far in Western countries is that <clears throat> a very significant group of people are not prepared to have this kind of invasive information being stored on their phone. And therefore, if you only get a low take up of these apps, they turn out to be much less effective. What's your personal take? I mean, I'm someone who, you know, if you'd said six months ago, how would you feel about the government having a central database of everywhere you've gone and everyone you've met? I would probably say, no, thank you. But but now it's, as you say, in this unique circumstances, it seems almost harder to say no. What would you do if this app was available to the wider population? Would you be interested in installing it on your phone? Well, I think like lots of people, I'd be very concerned about the potential uh, privacy issues and how this data was being used. But to be honest, I think from my experience and, and knowledge about epidemiology, I am very, very sceptical that it will ever be made to work well. And I think the old-fashioned approach of contact tracing uh, using human beings is undoubtedly the, going to be the mainstay of controlling the pandemic in the future. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing is that a really successful contact tracer is is doing a very similar job to a detective um, in in tracing the movements of, of various suspects, you know, and it needs the skills and the interests of a sort of Miss Marple, you know, who who comes and spends an hour with you and says, now exactly what were you doing last Tuesday in the afternoon? Uh, and who did you meet and how long did you spend with them? And where did you go then? And which shop did you visit? And um, and, and where were you? And and then and, and now I'd like to have the your contact details of those three people that you were in contact with on Tuesday. Can you give me their details and their telephone numbers and their names and addresses? And then you go and you contact them and so on and so on. And um, I think there's no there's no substitute for having well trained human beings doing this kind of detective work. Mm. I think you're probably right there. And I think we've seen here in the UK, at least the government has making much less fanfare about its long delayed app and is now bigging up the 25,000 human beings. It's very rapidly hired and tried to train to do the old fashioned contact tracing. 
But where we have seen technology really kick off outside of contact tracing is also in the issue of quarantine. So I don't know if you've seen, but in countries such as Taiwan, I think Singapore, uh, South Korea, um, way, the way it's worked is that because they have quite successfully controlled the spread of the virus in comparison with Europe, if you, for example, were to fly into Taiwan today, when you arrive in the airport, you're given a battery of tests, temperature checks, and you get a nasal swab, um, and then you're sent to your quarantine location. And then the government monitors whether you are obeying your two-week quarantine by not leaving the house by your phone's location data. So you're you're compelled to hand over your location data to the government, and then they will often do spot checks, ringing you up, and sometimes sending people round to check you haven't just left your phone at home and walked out to ensure you're abiding by the quarantine. And that's something which seems dystopian to us and yet has been strikingly effective at keeping death rates a fraction in, of what they are in places like in Europe. Absolutely. And I think this is this is the deep, deep challenge which I think we are facing in our societies because I think it it is already apparent that um, a small group of Asian countries that have been prepared to accept this kind of very invasive surveillance, uh, both of in terms of contacts, but then, as you say, in terms of monitoring quarantine. I, I remember reading this story about someone who, in, in one of these countries, who said that his battery had gone flat, and um, the, within a few hours, the police were knocking on his door, saying, where was he and what was he doing? Uh, which just shows you the kind of level of uh, sophistication and monitoring that it, that is possible um, with with these uh, devices, so I, I think it is clear that they've been highly successful in limiting the the virus, but at a very significant cost of monitoring. And then you take the other extreme, which is probably the USA, where you know the whole emphasis on individual libertarian freedom uh, has such that people have just not been prepared uh, to to follow very restrictive. Um, quarantine in in many places and are seeing the virus just continuing and continuing and and so we're going to be left it seems to me with a world where some of the very libertarian countries especially the USA are going to see virus being present and spreading around for months to come with all its long-term economic problems whereas other countries particularly China but some of the other Southeast Asian countries are going to be able to restart their economies much more successful, successfully because they've accepted this very invasive technology. So there's a kind of desensitization going on. People are, are being drip-fed with the message that actually uh, invasive monitoring is in the long run is good for societies. Mm. Oh, and how else do you think this is going to affect? Because, I mean, this is only really possible if you're a Taiwan or a South Korea or Singapore, highly industrialized, highly technologized, very wealthy country, along with a quite, you know, high levels of social compliance and conformity. But how does this unroll in India or in sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America? Well, indeed. And I think we're already seeing the way that the epicenter now we're recording this in the middle of june 2020 and we're seeing how the the uh, epicenter of the virus has shifted first from china then from europe now it's continuing to grow but slowly in the states uh, but it's particularly growing now rapidly in south america 
uh, and Brazil in particular, I think is um, the, the virus seems completely out of control. It's growing quite rapidly in, in places in India, Pakistan, South Africa, Nigeria, and so on. And of, and of course, these countries don't have the level of um, the, the developed health systems or the um, or the possibility of doing this kind of technological surveillance. And uh, they are they are going to depend on on pretty basic low tech methods of um, tracking, tracing, quarantining. Um, and uh, I fear that there is going to be uh, a growing medical catastrophe in, in many of these countries. Hmm. I mean, we saw when India first imposed its own lockdown a month or two ago, the only real option was an incredibly blunt instrument of compelling everyone to stay at home, which meant in a country where there are hundreds of millions of people who are, you know, subsistence farmers or relying on kind of like hand-to-hand trading in markets, if they stay at home, they literally will starve to death because they cannot earn money any other way. And 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 because they don't have India doesn't have the capacity to do this kind of smartphone based testing, tracing, isolating, just nipping it in the bud where there are actual infections. They were basically forced hundreds of millions of perfectly healthy people to stay at home, but impoverishing those same hundreds of millions. Yes, it's just a terrible tragedy, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, one the first response just has to be deep, deep sadness and lament because, you know, politicians are placed in an absolutely impossible a dilemma between on the one hand trying to limit the spread of the virus versus causing absolute mayhem to uh, the informal economy in particular and you know I, I think this is sadly one of these uh, themes that seem to me undeniable that the divide between the haves and the have-nots uh, the, is going to be enhanced we're going to see that both on a local level within our local communities here in the UK and in other developed countries between wealthy, affluent, professional people who basically have survived the pandemic remarkably well. They've had access to, you know, broadband in their homes. They've had been able to work from home. They've been able to carry on their professional activities. Uh, and by and large, they ha- they've been touched in a very minor way. And, and then you compare that with people living in the um, informal economy, in the gig economy, uh, people, low socioeconomic groups who've had a devastating effect um, of the the lockdown and so on. And uh, probably this will have permanent effects, uh, particularly for younger people entering the job market at this time. Another issue I've been thinking about is that um, there is a real window of opportunity at the moment for the rich countries, particularly the European countries, to show a real generosity to the poorer countries uh, in terms of transfer of medical equipment and personnel. So, I mean, if you, if you think here we are in, in Western Europe and by and large we've now managed to stockpile huge amounts of PPE, we've got excess numbers of ventilators and CPAP and respiratory support machines. 
uh, and we've got lots and lots of health personnel who've had a crash course in managing people with critically ill with COVID-19 virus. And so now that we are have got a massive excess of resources in Western Europe and from a medical point of view, and yet we're seeing other areas of the world where medical systems are being completely overwhelmed, you would have thought that there was a great opportunity now to show a genuine uh, a generosity and providing um, equipment, uh, ventilators and skilled personnel uh, to go from Western countries and, and provide emergency support for countries where the, the pandemic is taking off. And, and I think that would be such a, a wonderful demonstration of a kind of global solidarity. Um, but sadly, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be much sign of it. But, but maybe that is something that will we will start to see come together over the next few weeks and months. Mm. I heard one particularly devastating stat the other day, which is that the country of South Sudan has more vice presidents than it does have ventilators. <laughs> one source of hot air against another. Oh, very good. <laughs> But yes. I think you're absolutely right. There is a huge opportunity here. I guess my concern or my fear would be that times of pandemic and crisis often bring out the worst in people and that kind of small-minded populist nationalism which says, I've got to hoard resources for ourselves, for our own country, rather than being generous in spirit and seeking to share with those who might actually be in a worse position. But isn't this the fascinating thing? Because this is what warfare, history of warfare has always shown, and that is it shows both. Uh, under these kind of extreme cir- uh, circumstances, what you see is the very best of humanity and of human instincts, and you see the very worst. And um, I, we've seen both of that here in the UK. We have seen some remarkable uh, examples of uh, community support, uh, volunteering, self-sacrifice uh, for the good of one of, 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 for, of one another. And as well as some pretty bad and selfish uh, behaviour. So I think, yes, there is always going to be that uh, selfish instinct, but I, th- I think there is an opportunity, a, a deep sense that we're all in this together. And, and one of the, the things about a global pandemic is that it's just not possible for the rich world to say, well, it doesn't matter what happens in the rest of the world. We're going to pull up the drawbridges and look after ourselves. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, you know, if if there are areas of the world where the virus is just absolutely running riot, that is going to be a constant source of reinfection across the world. And therefore, it's actually a kind of enlightened self-interest for the rich countries to provide the resources to ensure that this virus is really controlled and cared, and people are cared for across the world. Hmm. And just lastly, on this point, maybe some, worth noting in a kind of geopolitical sense, China is already throwing itself into action and shipping PPE around the world. And of course, we know that they're not particularly doing it out of the generosity of their hearts, but it's part of a kind of uh, influence building et, et, um, and often comes with kind of, as we've seen with some of their other development work, comes with heavy strings attached and is designed to entrench poorer, co- poorer countries' reliance on China in the future. And so clearly, you know, there's almost, you say, if, if the West doesn't get involved in genuine and generous development work in this scale, they're going to, poorer countries will be forced to turn to um, less friendly but wealthy uh, allies in, in places like China. Yes, indeed. And if you just think, remember some years ago, the whole emphasis around um, 
playing off the debts that um, developing countries had, the Jubilee uh, initiative. And that really did lead to a remarkable um, coming together of different political and economic forces. I think arguably what, what the world is facing now is, is, is a greater uh, challenge than the debt crisis then. And, and uh, let's pray that we see that kind of positive uh, response, often led by uh, people of faith, Christians and other people of goodwill who, who genuinely want to act in a generous way. not only are we going to see a divide potentially between kind of political philosophies authoritarianism succeeding and libertarianism struggling but we might also see an entrenchment of an economic divide the wealthy rich industrialized nations and classes thrive and survive in this new socially distanced world and as you say the informal economy the self-employed the small-scale local farmers get left behind yeah, well, let's not be too pessimistic because, you know, one has to say there is also the most astonishing opportunity in the next few months to to try to recreate a different kind of society. You know, we have seen here in the UK some very positive trends of, of a sense of the community coming together, of being real concern for elderly, disadvantaged um, people, for, for people in the care sector, for homeless people and so on. Uh, the government has been prepared to be, um, to do very significant public spending. And, you know, there is historical precedent for this. You know, in the wreckage after the Second World War, um, that was the time at which it was possible for people to really think radically about what a new welfare state might look like you know what a national health service might look like and, and and to have big dreams and okay this is not the same as the second world war but there are some parallels it seems to me there seems to be an opportunity uh here in the uk and elsewhere to to uh, think radically about how we could uh, start to frame a society where these extremes of wealth and uh standards of living and security and so on are, are being opposed where this and i think that that means for me there has to be a greater emphasis on redistribution from the haves to the have-nots it's a really interesting comparison because what jumps at me when i think about the war and the immediate aftermath is that they built that new welfare state and that new kind of social contract basically using the tools that had been developed in emergency in in in, cri in crisis mode during the war you know so during the, the war the government in the UK this is effectively nationalized industry and instituted kind of top down planning to make sure that there was enough shells getting to this factory to building enough tanks and and various and so forth and and what you saw coming out of the war was just that it was top down government state control using the lessons learned from the war that actually maybe the government can provide for its citizens a universal safety net healthcare and maybe the government can do a better job at providing full employment and you know effectively we we saw that, that first Labour government nationalized swathes of industry on a more kind of permanent basis and maybe we'll see the same now the lessons the government is having to make up on the fly during this pandemic um 
might be some of the tools that they end up using in a longer term and become embedded in part of this new kind of social contract. No, well, I, I think there is an analogy there. And it, isn't it interesting that um, in retrospect, what uh, worked extremely well was the National Health Service as a as a new initiative. What worked much less well was social care in the post-war um, welfare state. And, and, that, uh, and so social provision for... Uh, the elderly, for the disadvantaged and so on, has always been the poor relation of the National Health Service, which has always been seen as the great uh, triumph of, of the welfare state. And perhaps now is an opportunity for social care uh, and, and uh, how we are going to care for elderly people into the future uh, to, to have a complete root and branch review. I, I, you know, I, do, I do think there's a window of opportunity uh, but it has to be seized. And, and um, I, I think you're right that uh, many people within the health service have said they've been astonished at how rapidly uh, these top-down decisions have been able to be made, like the creation of the Nightingale Hospitals and so on we've talked about previously. Um, it just shows you the value of a National Health Service. And this is, of course, one of the huge problems in the States that has this very fragmented um, basis for healthcare system and therefore it isn't possible to have these nationwide initiatives. The other thing we've seen over the last, what is it, three, four months now is this huge surge in digital communications. So as long as, as well as obviously the government is very experimenting with contact tracing and Bluetooth and apps, we've seen a massive surge in, in digital communications taking over the workplace, um, using meetings on Zoom and other te- uh, chat platforms, uh, but also in the in a kind of personal space, people are doing loads of their socialising, partly out of necessity, um, online, through apps. Do you think that's going to persist? Is this a lasting change in attitudes and culture? Is this something that will snap back to the ordinary way once we're allowed out of lockdown? No, my feeling is it is going to persist. And um, it's it, a lot of it, of course, is, is due to the fact that the technology is working so extraordinarily well. Um, so that many of us are discovering that provided we've got access to decent technology and access to decent broadband, an extraordinary range of possibilities are out there for us. And uh, this very podcast where we're, we're sitting in two separate places uh, separated by 50 miles is, is an example. Um, but um, I, I think it's just an interesting thought experiment. What would have happened if the pandemic came 30 years ago, as it could well have done, when all we basically had was um, long distance telephone calls, which were expensive and and difficult to maintain and apart from that we had the post um and how how would we have survived how would um uh, how would these families have have remained in contact and so on so um i think we're all of us discovering that actually um meetings up over zoom uh meetings uh, using webinar using the different kinds of uh, digital technologies are working remarkably well uh, and I'm, I've, I've no doubt that this is going to be a permanent uh, shift towards the digital, towards the virtual 
Um, I mean, many people think that, that international business travel may well have had a major hit. I mean, it may well still happen, but probably to a significantly less extent because companies are finding how much um, it's possible to do using the internet. And I think also uh, even, you know, the traditional office block, you know, is it really necessary for all the employees of a country to come back to some massive open plan office when it turns out that it may be much more efficient and cheaper for them to be working from home? Hmm. I was listening to another podcast where there's a professor of business who does a lot of kind of consultancy work. And he was saying that his message to businesses who have contacted him being like, you know, look into the future for us and tell us what is going to happen. His, his message is the next 10 years of transformation that you expected to happen gradually has been compressed into two months. And we're now today where we you all thought your businesses would be in 10 years. You know, so Starbucks, for example, has just announced they're going to be permanently closing 400 of their physical locations across America, not necessarily because the business is struggling, but because they think people no longer need a physical Starbucks to go and get coffee. They have a tremendously successful app where people can order coffee on the app and then just have it delivered or turn up to one of the fewer locations and pick it up already made. They don't have to queue and sit and drink it there and take it away with them. And so these kind of long-term shifts that had started long before coronavirus arrived away from physical retail, uh, office blocks, as you say, physical meetings and towards doing things, transacting in the digital space, that's just been tremendously accelerated. Absolutely. And a very good example is GPs. I mean, if you talk to GPs a year ago, they would all say, oh, the face-to-face -face communication, seeing the patient in the um in in the consulting room you know is absolutely essential and nothing can ever replace that and then wham uh gps have switched to using digital technology and mobile phones and uh, and uh, most of them are saying actually it works so much better and the patients are happier and it's much more efficient and um, again it's an example of how something that could easily have taken um, years of slow creep has, has actually just happened almost overnight um, and of course this is one of the remarkable things about human beings again that's our adaptability you know that that faced with uh, genuine crisis to our survival and to our way of life um, me most human beings have this remarkable ability to just learn new tricks and, uh, and new ways of working and I think we're seeing that written on a very large scale. So I think there are lots of reasons for optimism. I, I have to say, I also worry though, and this is perhaps particularly coming from a Christian point of view, because one of the interesting things about uh, traditional historic Christianity is the way that it has always put a huge emphasis on our physical embodiment, on the importance of a human face-to-face -face interaction. And that's why our churches and our gatherings have, have always pray, placed so much emphasis on meeting face to face. That's what Christians have been doing for 2000 years and, and particularly celebrating the Eucharist or the, the communion. And um, it's interesting that actually churches have found none of this is possible and instead uh, have moved onto the virtual realm and, and yes it's working well and leading to all kinds of new possibilities but there's something about this loss of the physical which I, I think could be really quite damaging in the long run. Mm. I mean you could even if you were being 
particularly pessimistic, sketch out a future in which large public gatherings become more and more rare and actually churches become one of the few remaining widespread social institutions that do kind of insist that that the physical is necessary and the virtual is a, is a substitute. And does that even become quite glaringly countercultural if, you know, churches are some of the few remaining places where people say, actually... It's not the same if you log in online. You need to come and physically be present with us in our fleshy bodies in the same physical space. Yeah, no, I think there is something in that. And I, and I think there is a real uh, possibility for uh, Christianity to uh, and Christian churches to, to act as a witness in that sense. I mean, one of the interesting things, of course, is it's not just Christian people who have this intuition about the importance of physical embodiment. I think many, many people in our society have have deep a sense of unease about the way that everything is moving into the virtual and what the impact is going to be for our humanity of, of living entirely in a, in a digital or virtual world so they have a deep intuition that there's something important about physical embodiment but the interesting thing is that providing a robust philosophical reason for why physical embodiment is an essential part of our humanity that's very difficult to do apart from orthodox historic christianity and with orthodox christianity with its emphasis on the body and in particular with its emphasis on the idea of the incarnation that the very god of the universe turns himself into a physical embodied human being and is raised from the dead as a physical touchable recognizable human being this this i think may have new power and new relevance in a post-pandemic world i think you're absolutely right on that but i think there's a real call here for the church to exercise wisdom and discernment because what we don't want to do is for the christian movement to become a neo-luddite movement which stands you know athwart progress yelling stop in that famous phrase what we don't want is for people to see the church as as our world accelerates towards this digital future people you don't want people to see the church as basically a relic of the of the of the the fleshy embodied past but someone who can say actually there's loads to be gained by zoom and youtube and facebook and whatever else but here are some of the costs and here are some of the concerns and and i guess what we need to do as christians is be developing that discernment to say what aspects of our increasingly increasingly digital life is positive but what aspects are negative and how do we divide between the two rather than just saying this is new and we don't like it absolutely agree and this is this idea that technology does have evil influences and powers within it but that it can be redeemed it can be brought back out of the evil domain and used for good and that's really what we need to learn how to do that anyway this is a topic i'm sure we could discuss and will discuss in future podcasts but it's important to see how this current pandemic is already raising these questions mm. thanks very much john we'll come back to this another time episode of matters of life and death if you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about you can find lots more to read listen and watch at john's website he's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide to the big picture narrative of the bible to artificial intelligence all free to access and share please visit johnwyatt.com that's j-o-h-n-w-y-a-t-t dot com 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.